Would you join me in praying as we come to the word this morning? Lord Jesus, uh, I am keenly aware of my need for you to do something new this morning. God, for you to move in a fresh way. I read something this week that said old grace is dangerous. Uh, Lord, when we rely on what you did last week, last month, last year, we need you to move in new ways, God. We need to experience fresh grace this morning. So would you come and speak to us, God, as we come to your word? Would you, through your Holy Spirit, God, meet us here. You know where each and every one of us are. You know what we've been coming from this past week and what we're walking into this coming week. Would you meet with us and minister to our hearts? May we become more like you because of this time together this morning. That is a miracle that I ask for, Lord Jesus, to transform us from the inside out this morning. But we wait expectantly on you. Come and do what only you can do. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're continuing our walk through the book of Mark. Uh, two weeks ago, uh, since we didn't have service last week, we read through in Mark chapter 6, the feeding of the 5,000, uh, a story really familiar uh, to most of us where Jesus has a crowd of people that he has been teaching uh, and it comes to the end of the day, and the, the crowd is hungry, and the disciples come to Jesus and say, you got to send these people away. they they got to be able to go and, and buy food that they need. And we, we talked a little bit. We, historians have shown us that it says feeding of the 5,000. That's probably your little paragraph heading in your Bible. Uh, but actually, it was closer to fifteen or 20,000. 5,000 men, and it says women and children aside. So 5,000 men plus their wives and children, 15, 20,000 strong. And Jesus says, no, we're, we're not sending these people away to fend for themselves. We're going to feed them. And the disciples, as only the disciples can, go, Jesus, you're crazy. Do you want us to spend half a year's wages just to buy a bite of bread for everyone? Like, you're crazy. Jesus says, go see what we have. They come back and they go, we have five loaves, two fish, and 20,000 people. And Jesus says, watch this. He, he breaks the bread and he gives thanks to it in front of everyone. And he just starts tearing off pieces and throwing them into baskets. And the disciples, like, oh, he said to do it, so we'll do it. They pick up the baskets and they start walking through the crowds of people, handing out bread and fish to everyone. And by the time all is said and done, 20,000 or so people have had their fill of bread and fish to the point where there's 12 basketfuls left over. This incredible miracle that Jesus does. And when we looked at it two weeks ago, we didn't focus so much on the miracle itself. We're going to come back and touch base with it this week. What we focused on is what that miracle reveals to us about Jesus. Because when you read the story through Mark, there's a thread of compassion weaving its way through the whole story. It starts, if you remember, Jesus' disciples had just gotten back from a couple weeks of hard ministry out on the road. Remember, he sent them out two by two and he said, don't take anything with you for the trip. Don't take any extra food. Don't take any money. Don't even take a walking stick. You're going to go and you're going to depend completely on the hospitality of strangers 
And so they go out, and this, this would have been a really cool time. It says that they saw people healed and, and, and the demonized set free, and they saw miracles. But it would have been a hard time, an intense time. And so they come back, and they're meeting with Jesus at the beginning of this story. And it says there's so many people coming and going that the disciples don't even have a chance to eat. And Jesus has compassion on them and says, let's get in the boat and go to the other side. You guys need to rest. This ministry you've been doing is hard and it's wrong to just keep pushing you. You need rest. So they get in the boat and they go across. Everyone sees them go and they put two and two together and they actually run around the lake and beat Jesus and the disciples to the spot. They ran faster than the disciples could row so that it says when Jesus steps off the boat onto the shore, that crowd is already there. And Jesus, instead of throwing the temper tantrum that I would have thrown, this is my day off. What do you people want from me? It says that Jesus has compassion on them. In one translation, it says, he sees them as they truly are, harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And it says he has compassion on them and begins to teach them. And then at the end of this day of teaching, when he has them all there, instead of sending them out to fend for themselves, 20,000 people back then was a massive amount of people. It still is today, but there wasn't a super Walmart they could go to and buy bread. Like, there wasn't places for all of these people to go get food. And Jesus has compassion on them. Again, he's tired. His disciples are tired. But he has compassion. And he works this miracle to feed them. And, and one more, one last act of compassion, which is where we'll pick up our story today. 20,000 people there, his disciples have just passed out all of the bread. They've collected the extras and Jesus again has compassion on them and says, you guys get in the boat and go across. I'll dismiss the crowds. This was not how teachers and disciples worked at the time. Disciples did the grunt work. Teachers kind of took it easier. But Jesus moved with compassion, says, I'll do the work that you should be doing, the work that everyone expects of you after this hard day. He, he has been teaching, he's been working these miracles, but he has compassion again and says, you never got the rest you need. You get in the boat and go. I'll take care of the crowds. And so we focused on how this miracle just reveals in spades the compassion of Jesus on his own followers, on the crowds. The compassion that if you really put yourself into his frame of mind is miraculous is divine because any one of us would have reached our breaking point pretty early on in this. But Jesus just continues to overflow with compassion. And then we pick up in Mark chapter 6, verse 45. This is immediately following that, that miracle. It says, immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. After he said goodbye to them, he went away to the mountain to pray. When evening came, the boat was in the middle of the sea, and he was alone on the land. He saw them being battered as they rowed, because the wind was against them. Around three in the morning, he came toward them, walking on the sea, and wanted to pass by them. When they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost, and they cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. Immediately, he spoke to them and said, have courage, it is I, don't be afraid. Then he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. And they were completely astounded because they had not understood about the loaves. Instead, their hearts were hardened. 
So let's just walk through this. Again, one of the, the practices uh, that I'm trying to instill as we go through the book of Mark is when you're reading a story in scripture to actually stop and try to put yourself in the story. What would it have been like? What would it have felt like? How would you have reacted? All of these different things. And so let's just kind of break this story down, slow it down a little bit. Jesus, again, moved by compassion, sends the disciples off in the boat, dismisses the crowd, and then notice this. What does Jesus do? He is exhausted. He needs replenished, refilled. What does he do? Does he tie up a hammock and go take a nap? He doesn't. That is not the answer. What does Jesus do in this instant? Chris, go back a slide for me if you would. This is where you actually answer. He went on the mountain to pray. We've seen this before in Mark chapter 1 and chapter 2. We talked about it then. When Jesus feels empty, he turns to the Lord. We've seen this at other times when he's been teaching and, and healing and he's overwhelmed. And it says he gets up early in the morning and he goes to the mountainside to pray. And every time Jesus goes to the mountainside to pray, he comes down with fresh power, fresh vision. He has been in the presence of his God and that is all that he needs. This is just a side note. What do we turn to when we're exhausted? Naturally, it will not be to the Lord. We will turn to all manner of things that we think are going to feed us and give us what we need, and they all come up short. Jesus, in those times, gets alone with the Father and is refreshed and replenished by it. So he goes up, and he is praying through the evening, and it says that he's on this mountainside, and he looks out as the sun is going down, and he sees the disciples struggling at the oars just about a mile offshore. The wind has come up against them. The disciples have been here before, yes? If you remember back in Mark chapter 4, they were, they were in this same sea, probably in this same boat, with wind and waves coming against them. How did they respond at that point? They, Jesus was sleeping in the back, and they ran, and they grabbed him, and they woke him up, and they said, don't you even care that we're going to die? Now, to the disciples' credit, they're growing, they're learning. We don't have anything of them complaining or, or giving up hope at this point. They just put their head down and they just keep rowing. He didn't let us sink before. We'll make it this time. Just keep rowing, boys. It says about three in the morning then, when they're out in the middle of the sea, they look up from the oars, the waves crashing against, the wind pelting them. They look up and they see Jesus walking on the sea. Now, this is one of those things that we have heard so much, Jesus walked on water, that we kind of get numb to it after a little while if we're not careful. But I don't know about you, when I close my eyes and try to picture Jesus walking on the water, my brain kind of breaks. Like, I don't have context. Like, was he just walking leisurely and the waves were breaking over his knees as he's just strolling? Is he going up and down with the waves? Like, I don't even know how to imagine it. It's so unearthly. People don't walk on water, amen? Like, if you really stop and think about this story, you have to come to a point of going, best I can figure it kind of maybe looked like this, because like, I don't even know what to do with it. The disciples see this and they have the similar reaction. It's a ghost. This doesn't happen. 
And they are terrified. And it says they begin to cry out. We're goners. (laughs) There's a ghost in the middle of the sea. We're done for. Jesus immediately calls out to them and says, have courage, it's me. Don't be afraid, it's me. They welcome Jesus into the boat. I love that because it says, like before then, he wasn't welcome. No, 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 go faster, boys. Turn, go the other way. Like, but then he, he says, it's me. Their eyes are kind of opened and they go, Jesus, get in the boat. And if you notice, it's just a weird little detail. Jesus is walking on the sea and he wanted to pass by them. He wasn't even walking to the boat to get in. His plan was just to keep strolling. I'll catch you guys on the other side. Like, it's just a tiny little detail, but you go, what? They're struggling at the oars, and Jesus was like, they got it. And he was just going to keep moving on by. They notice him. They cry out. There's, there's no ignoring them at that point in time. So he gets in the boat, and it says that immediately the wind ceased. Does that sound familiar? Immediately the storm stops. No, be still. Like He didn't say anything. As soon as his foot hits the boat, the storm stops. And they were completely astounded. Now, if you're familiar at all with this story, which which many of us are, this is one of the most told stories from the Bible, there's a piece missing. There's actually a couple pieces, depending on how closely you pay attention. What's missing from this story, from Peter's account of this story? Yeah, Peter walking on the water too. Peter, what are you doing How do you leave out? There's actually two people in recorded history that have ever walked on water, and I'm one of them. Here's something we have to understand. When we come to the scriptures, every letter that we have written was written for a specific purpose. We have four different accounts of the gospel, the life of Jesus. All of them were written for a very specific purpose. And so some of them have some details and don't have others. Some tell about this story and leave that story out. Like, it's interesting, but you can learn a lot in what the authors were actually trying to say, sometimes by what they didn't say, by what they left out. But let's look at the whole picture of this event in Matthew chapter 14. Matthew records it this way. The same thing with the feeding of the 5,000. And and Jesus sends the disciples off. And around three in the morning, he came toward them walking on the sea. When the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified. It's a ghost. Same exact thing. They said, and they cried out in fear. Immediately, Jesus spoke to them. Have courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter answered him, command me to come out on the water. Come, he said. And climbing out of the boat, Peter started walking on the water and came toward Jesus. When he saw the strength of the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus reached out his hand, caught hold of him and said to him, you of little faith, why did you doubt? When they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And then those in the boat worshiped him and said, truly, you are the son of God. Peter, there's some teachable moments in there that you left out of your your account. Remember, the book of Mark is actually Peter's account. Mark just wrote down Peter's story. Peter, it seems like you missed some pretty big things. There is so much that we can learn from Peter walking on the water, yes? The faith that Peter has. Lord, command me to come out to you and I will. And he walks on the water 
Again, I don't even know how to picture this until he takes his eyes off of Jesus. He, he, his, his attention gets caught by the wind and the waves, and he begins to sink. This sounds a lot like when Jesus was teaching uh, about the parable of the sower, and he talks about those whose faith is choked out by the worries and the concerns of this world. We see Peter's faith kind of dwindle in that moment because he takes his eyes off of Jesus and his solid foundation gives way. He starts to sink and, and it says that Jesus lords it over him and tells him, Peter, you should have known better and lets him drown for a little bit to teach him a lesson. No. It says that immediately Jesus reaches out his hand. As soon as Peter cries out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reaches out, takes him by the hand, and pulls him up. And then he, he questions him, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Why did you ever take your eyes off me? Why, do, why did you start getting worried about all of this stuff? I'm in control. Peter, how could you leave this story out? John adds another very interesting little piece that's very easy to miss in his account of this story. John uh, chapter 6, 19 says, After they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea. He was coming near the boat, and they were afraid. But he said to them, It is I. Don't be afraid. Then they were willing to take him on board. Again, I love that. And at once the boat was at shore where they were heading. Did you catch it? As soon as foot touches boat, at once the boat was at shore where they were heading. That sounds like teleportation. Like I, I don't even, again, know what to call it. They were in the middle of the sea, in the middle of the wind and the waves. Foot touches boat, wind and waves stop, and they're immediately at their destination. Peter, that sounds like a pretty cool miracle, man. That gives glory to God. Why would you leave that out of your story? Why wouldn't you record the whole thing? It's such a good story. How could Peter leave it out? I wonder if the answer isn't in, back in Mark chapter 6, in Peter's story, verse 51 and 52. Then he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. They were completely astounded, catch this, because they had not understood about the loaves. Instead, their hearts were hardened. I wonder if Peter, and again, this is me wondering, if Peter didn't leave some of those other miracles out because he's going, I don't want you to get dazzled by those and miss this. The point of Peter writing this story isn't, man, look at the cool stuff Jesus did. The point of Peter writing this story was to go, we missed it. We were astounded, not because we saw a guy walking on the water and that's just crazy. We were astounded because we didn't understand about the miracle of the loaves. We didn't understand what Jesus was trying to show us when he fed the 5,000. And because of that, we missed it. And I don't want you to get so dazzled with all of these other things that happen that you missed it. Our hearts were hardened. This is why Peter is telling this story. This is to illustrate that even we, his followers, we missed it. I think Peter would put it something like this. We put Jesus in a box. And because of that, we missed what he was trying to show us. 
we missed the whole point of the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. You see, one thing we know from other discussions that the disciples had, they, like almost everyone else at the time, was looking to Jesus to be some kind of earthly king. That he was going to come back and lead some crazy military campaign to put Israel back on top again. That's what Israel had been waiting for. When the Messiah comes, we're going to be somebody again. We're no longer going to be under Rome's thumb and all of this. The Messiah is going to put us back on top. It's what they had been waiting thousands of years for because they misunderstood. And the disciples fell prey to the same exact thing. They were looking at Jesus as he's some good prophet. He's some guy that God is coming to to put Israel back on the map again. And they were completely missing his real message. We've already looked at all throughout here. When Jesus talks about the gospel, he says the kingdom of heaven has come near. God is doing a brand new thing, and they were looking for the kingdom of Israel. They were missing what Jesus was about. Jesus was showing them in the feeding of the 5,000, or as Peter says it, uh, in the miracle of the loaves, Jesus was showing them divinity. Jesus was showing them something that only God could do. You see, here's the thing. When it comes to healings and and the, the freeing of those who are demonized, it's not that those are lesser miracles or those aren't important, but those had been done before. Those, when you read through the Old Testament, you see accounts of this where God empowers certain people to be able to do this, prophets and the like, as a way of showing, here's a really important man who's going to lead Israel back to where Israel belongs. And so these miracles would come out as a way of just kind of going, hey, God says, listen to me. They had seen those kind of things before, and so when they saw them from Jesus, they assumed the same thing. He's just some guy who's trying to get Israel back on top again. We as a nation need to turn back to to God so that Israel will be blessed and will prosper. And many were falling into the same way of thinking. Jesus was restoring broken things, taking things that were good but had been twisted or had fallen or had gotten sick, and he was restoring them. And it's not that like, oh, these were just everyday miracles. Think about it. I don't use this lightly. My God, what would it be like if the healing of the sick and the casting out of evil spirits was everyday in the church? was like, man, this is so good. We've seen it before, but man, it's just good. But that's where they were. They saw these things, and they were going, this is awesome. God's doing something new, but it's to put Israel back on the map. They missed it. They were putting Jesus in this earthly box. And what Jesus was trying to show them was, I'm going to do things that only God can do. I have power over all creation. Not just this person was sick and now they're not. I can create something out of nothing. And that is something that only God does. Jesus was declaring divinity through these miracles and they were missing it. Their hearts were hardened, Peter says. Now, it's important... um, the word he used there for hardened, I don't, I'm not going to get into the Greek and all of that kind of stuff, but what that word means is it wasn't a hardening, like sometimes it's used in Scripture to mean rebellious against. 
Paul talks in Romans chapter 9 about Pharaoh back in Egypt and how his heart was hardened towards God. And it was this, you are not going to tell me what to do kind of thing. It was this rebellious hardening. That's not the word uh, that Mark uses here. The word that they used means this, unresponsive or dense, completely lacking sensitivity or spiritual perception. He, uh, Peter wasn't going, we were rebelling against Jesus and, and we refused to see him like he truly is. He just said, we missed it. We were so focused on something else, our hearts were not soft toward God and what he was doing, and we missed it. We were spiritually imperceptive. Unperceptive? Imperceptive? I like it. We missed it. Their own expectations, the box that they had put Jesus in, caused them to miss the significance of what Jesus was doing. Peter is telling us that there was something different about the miracle with the loaves. Remember, he says, that's why we were so astounded, because we didn't understand what he did just hours before. If we would have understood that, we wouldn't have been astounded and terrified when we saw him walking on the water. We'll touch on that here again in a minute. What I think they should have thought back to, if they were really expecting God to move and do new things, if they had been paying attention to who Jesus was telling them he was, the things that they would have seen, that the dots that they would have connected at the miracle of the loaves would have been things that they have heard their whole lives, like stories from 1 Kings 17. Uh, the prophet Elijah, he, he declares famine in the land of Israel. He go, walks into the king's throne room unannounced and says, God says because of where the nation is, there's going to not be rain for three and a half years. There's going to be a famine. And he turns and he walks out. And Elijah has kind of a tough time after that. Uh, Elijah was someone who probably struggled with depression. And there's, there's a ton of stuff going on in Elijah's life. But he starts to give up hope. And the Lord tells him, I'm going to provide for you, Elijah. And so first, while he's just out in the middle of the wilderness, God sends ravens to bring him meat and bread. Like truly birds just dropping off food to him in the middle of this ravine. And then God says, I want you to go to, there's this widow in this one town, and I want you to go to her. She's, I'm going to provide for you through her. And Elijah says, okay. Gets up, goes to this woman's house, and says, hey, the Lord told me to come here, said he's going to use you to provide for me. Can I have some water and a little bit of bread? She says, water I got. As far as bread, I have a handful of flour and a few drops of oil. My plan is actually I was going to make a small loaf for my son and I to eat, and then we were going to die. This is all I got, and like, I can't help you. So Elijah prays, and he says, the Lord says, make your loaf, make me a small one first, and trust him. See what he does. The widow says, okay. She goes, and she makes what she can make out of what she has. She bakes the bread, and then she looks in the jar, and there's more flour than there was when she started. And then she goes, and she looks at her oil, and there's more oil than there was when she started. And she is able to, through this amazing power of the Lord, feed her, herself, her son, and Elijah for months without going and buying new flour, without going and buying new oil. She had no money. And the Lord created something out of nothing to provide for her. 
It was a sign that God was on the move. And then later in 2 Kings 4, just a few chapters later, we move from Elijah with a J to Elisha, S-H. It's kind of confusing. Elisha was Elijah's helper. And then when Elijah went up to heaven, Elisha became the new prophet. So it's, their names are so close it can be tricky. But there's a story in 2 Kings 4 where Elisha, again, dealing with a widow, he's walking through this town and this woman comes up to him and goes, would you pray to God for me? My husband just died and now my son and I have inherited all of his debts and we have nothing. And so Elisha says, well, you don't have nothing. Like, what do you have? And she goes, I got a few drops of oil. That's it. And so he prays and he says, here's what the Lord says to do. And then he actually walks on. It's not Elisha doing these miracles. It's God providing for his people. He says, here's what, here's what God says to do. Go around to all the neighbors in your town and borrow as many empty jars as you can. Beg, borrow, whatever you got to do. Get every empty jar in the town. And so she sends her son out and they collect all of these empty jars. And he says, start pouring. She goes, you want me to pour from this jar into that jar? That's what God says. Just do it. So she starts pouring. And before she knows it, tells her son, like, get me another jar. This jar is full. It's starting to overflow. I need another jar. So her son grabs one of the borrowed jars, fills it. Next one, next one, next one, next one. Until every jar that they had borrowed was completely full to the brim with oil. Only then, once all the jars were full, did the original jar dry up. And then Elijah says, now go take all that oil, sell it, and pay, pay off your debts. God provided for her, creating something out of nothing. Taking what wasn't enough and making it abundant. This was something that only God had done. And they would have known these stories. The most famous of all, manna from heaven. Exodus chapter 16, the Israelites have just left Egypt. And they're starting to kind of wander through this, this desert place. And they do what the Israelites do. And they start complaining to Moses, why don't we just go back to Egypt? At least there we had soup and bread and everything was good back in Egypt, which it wasn't. But they started to complain and to grumble. And so Moses cries out to God and goes, I don't have food for all of these people. There was estimates anywhere from a half a million to like two million people. And Moses is like, what am I going to do? We're in a desert. And God says, I will take care of you. Every morning until you come into the promised land, which would end up being over 40 years, every morning when your people wake up, there's going to be bread just lying on the ground. It's called manna. It was like this wafer thin, kind of tasting like honey type of bread. Every day when they wake up, it's just going to be laying there. Tell them to go around and collect what they need for the day. And tell them, don't even bother storing up for tomorrow because I have new bread coming tomorrow. I will take care of them every single day. I will create something out of nothing to provide for my people. And it always kind of centers around bread, it seems like. But until they entered the promised land, actually the day they, they went through the river and stepped onto the promised land, that day the manna stopped coming because they had entered into the promised land. Every day until then, God miraculously provided for his people. And I think what Peter is saying is, we had put Jesus in this, he's a good guy, maybe he's a prophet, we should listen to his teaching box, and we completely 
missed it. He was performing acts of creation. Power over all creation. Wind, stop. Boat, move from here, miles away to there, like that. There were these, these miracles were not just, and I, it's weird to say, everyday miracles. These were acts of creation, of power over creation. Jesus was declaring, I'm not just a good guy, a good teacher. I am God. And the disciples missed it. Back to Mark 6.52. Then he got into the boat with them. The wind ceased. They were completely astounded because they had not understood about the loaves. Instead, their hearts were hardened. They were astounded because they had missed it. When they, when they saw Jesus, all of a sudden things snapped into focus and they were astounded because it was like, how could we not have seen it? How could we have missed it? We put him in this tiny box and when they see him walking on the water, all of a sudden things come into focus and they go, we've been idiots. They were astounded, I think, at their own lack of faith. How could we have, we have been with him the whole time and we missed it? I think they should have seen him walking on water and been like, I mean, of course he is. He's God. He can do whatever he wants. I think there still would have been astonishment. I think there still would have been, are you kidding me? On the water, but not in some lack of belief, not, but in a, of course he is. Why are we even surprised anymore, guys? This is God with us. Instead, they were still up to this point asking the same question they were asking the last time they were in a boat with Jesus. Back in Mark 4, when Jesus, he says, he got up, he rebuked the wind and the sea. Silence, be still. The wind ceased and there was great calm. Then he said to them, why are you fearful? Do you still have no faith? And, and listen to the question they're asking. And they were terrified and asked one another, who then is this? Even the wind and the sea obey him. They were missing it. Who is this guy? That is the question they had been asking the whole time. They were missing the point, but this time they got it. I don't know if you caught it over in Matthew's version. Chapter 14, at the end, it says this. When they got into the boat, Jesus and Peter, when they got in the boat, the wind ceased. Then those in the boat worshiped him and said, truly, you are the Son of God. This is the first time that we see the disciples worshiping Jesus. This is the first time we see them declaring that he is the Son of God. All of the sudden, they get it. And they fall and worship. No more, who is this guy that can even walk on water? They see him, and finally everything snaps together, and they fall on their face, and they worship him. We were thinking that you were just a good person, maybe even a prophet, and we had missed it. You are God. And they fall on their face and they worship him. Truly, you are the son of God. One of our values here at the church is to, to live with divine expectation and engagement. Learning to live a life that expects God to show up and do God-sized things. Because I think if not, we're in danger of the same thing that the disciples were. Missing what God is doing. Missing how God is working. Because we've got him in a, in a lowercase g, God-sized box. God's only allowed to do this. 
God's only going to help me this far. God's love only goes that far. And we miss what God is trying to do because it's scary. Like Amanda shared earlier, putting all of that trust in him, if you don't show up, we're sunk. But this is the way that God has called us to live with divine expectation. Expecting a God who is bigger than we can imagine to show up and do things that are bigger than we can imagine. To live life in that kind of posture. Not just like, I'll share with you guys personal struggle. When somebody comes and they go, hey, so-and-so's in the hospital. They've got this going on. You know, can we pray for them? Here's my struggle. I never want to pray. And it's not that it's a wrong prayer. It's, I just haven't figured it out yet and I'm struggling. I never want to pray, God, use the doctors. God, give the doctors wisdom. Those are not bad prayers. But every single time there's something in my heart of going, am I selling him short? God, work through just natural means that could happen even without you moving, but we'll give you glory if they happen to. Instead of going, God, would you move and actually touch this person? Would we see a miracle? Would, would, we, see a, would we see you heal this person? They were sick. We prayed. They're better. Those are scary prayers because what if God doesn't, Right? Does that mean my faith wasn't big enough? Does that mean I prayed the wrong thing? Does that mean, am I going to let somebody else down by praying it? There's all these fears that come up. But this is my struggle in that. And again, I'm not trying to slap anyone's hands uh, for if we praying for wisdom for the doctors. And again, it's not a bad prayer at all. But I wonder at times, if God's not going, step out of the boat. Like, you, you have no idea what I can do. Don't put me in this little box that just gives the doctor an aha moment so he can do his job better. I may do that, but I can do so much more. If you would just put your faith in that, if you would just pray that way, expecting for a good and loving God to do big things that only a good and loving God can do, I think we would be astounded at how we see him move. I think of Ephesians 3, 20 to 21. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or even imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more, bigger than can even be measured, than we could ever even ask or imagine. Do you ever feel like your prayer was pretty bold? okay, God, I'm asking for a big one here. And he's going, I can do immeasurably more than the biggest thing you can even comprehend to ask for. Whatever you can imagine in your mind, I can top it. And this, not that God always says yes, or we pray it and he has to do it. I mean, we've, we've talked through some of this before, but how many of us have God in too small of a box where we won't even ask for those things because it just seems too big for him? Or does he really care that much? Is he really even listening to me? And so we keep him in this small box, and I wonder, do we miss what he's actually trying to do, just like the disciples? So let me ask this question, and this is where I would love feedback. I would love for us to learn from each other uh, in some of this. In what ways are we in danger of putting God in a box and missing what he's doing? Here in Elkins, West Virginia in 2021, in what ways do we put God in this box and potentially miss what he's doing, what he wants to do in and through us? What do you think?
Yeah, we can get, much. Peter is a wonderful illustration, we can get so focused on what's coming at us that we miss who's standing right in front of us. Can, there's, can he even overcome these wind and waves that are coming at me? We get so intent on them that we miss the, the Jesus standing in front of us, who those are nothing to him. But do we even look for him in that way? In what ways are we in danger of putting God in a box and missing what he's doing? Sometimes we, like, there's a passage that says, who is man, like who has ever given God counsel that he needed it? Who, who has God ever asked advice from is basically what the scripture is saying. And how many times do we come and we go, okay, God, I got it figured out. Here's what you need to do. On Tuesday, show up and do this and everything will be fine. And I have to think sometimes God's going, are you kidding me? I said immeasurably more than anything you could ask or imagine and you're trying to dictate to me? Or we get frustrated because we pray this way and by that evening, he didn't do it. I told him to, and he didn't do it. And it's, it sounds so silly. I get it. But how many times is that our posture? Jesus, if you would just do what I tell you to do, everything would be great. And he's like, yeah, how's that worked so far? Why do you think you're in the mess you're in half the time? But we miss it. We have him in this box of the genie in a bottle. If, if, I'll rub him the right way, and he does what I tell him to do. Everything will be great. And it misses it. What else? That was a Britney Spears lyric, in case you guys missed it. I'm not proud of myself either way. No, I'm actually more proud of myself for not knowing who it actually was. So that's, thank you for saying that. Sometimes you're in the middle of saying something going, I don't want to be here, but it's too late. What else? How else do we put God in a box? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. 
We have so many other options we can depend on that if God doesn't move in the way that I think he should want him to, whatever, like there's still plan B and probably plan C and then I'll go get a new doctor and I'll, uh, whatever else. Where, yeah, in some of these places, again, most of us wouldn't go, man, I wish we were just impoverished, you know, and living in, one of, in a third world country. But there is something where we look at it and we go, but they also see God move in ways we probably won't because if he doesn't, they die. Like they are completely dependent on him because they don't have the luxuries we do of a plan B, a plan C, I'll just put it on the credit card, whatever else. And so in many ways, they're more fortunate than we are because of the position it puts them into. They oftentimes, it doesn't have to be this way, but because of our box, they will see God move in ways that we can't imagine because they had to depend on him. It was faith in him or we're sunk. Anything else? What ways are we in danger of putting God in the box? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, in that way, like oftentimes how we treat each other is how we treat God. I'll see you guys on Sunday. Outside of that, I really don't need you. To say that to his body, to his bride, shows something deeper. There's a good chance that that's how I live with him as well. I'll, I'll, I'll get a hold of you when something goes wrong and I need you to do something for me. Outside of that, I'll see you on Sunday or whatever it may be. And then, yeah, we're surprised when we don't see him moving in powerful ways and, and meeting with us and having, having experience with him. It's good. I don't have enough oil for the one jar that I have. Like, right. Starvation cake does sound delicious. Yeah. Yeah. Right. 
Yeah, I mean, in all of those illustrations, there was always obedience. There was always a step of faith before they saw God do anything. Whether it's the disciples rowing their little hearts out, at some point they went, you mean you could have just, the whole time? Like, but there was something to it. It was part of the process. We're going to do what he says to do, and then we'll see what he does. Go, like, bake, bake me some bread before you bake your son some starvation cake. Uh, like, go get the jars, whatever it may be, and going, again, I don't, I don't understand why. I, he hasn't done a miracle yet, but yet he's still calling me to do things that seem crazy. But they had faith, they responded in obedience, and they saw miracles in return. Sometimes we're just not even willing to take that first step of faith. I've, I've thought this before in Matthew's account of uh, when Peter gets out on the water. And it's very clear when Jesus says, you have little faith, why did you doubt that he's talking to Peter? But I've often thought he could have just as easily turned and looked at everyone else in the boat. You have little faith. Why'd you doubt? At least he walked out here. At least he took some steps of faith. And to my knowledge, he's the second man ever to walk on water because he was willing to at least take those steps. And I mean, yeah, Peter falls and he has his own issues, but the other guys were still in the boat. How many of them later do you think were sitting there and going, do you think I could have? Like, I, why didn't I ask? Why, why didn't I just follow Peter right on out? I didn't even take the initial step, and I missed having this amazing experience with Jesus because of it, this faith-building experience there has to be times later in Peter's life. Peter goes through some difficult things later in life, and there has to be times when he just closes his eyes and goes, I've walked on water with him. What are they going to do? We, our boat teleported. What are they going to do? Like the faith building that came from that because Peter was willing to step out of the boat. All right, let me, let me close here because could, we could talk about this for a long time. Hey, I'm not going anywhere after if you want to talk about this for a long time. Let's keep doing it. I'm going to close in prayer, and then we'll sing a song, and we'll close our service. Lord Jesus, we desire to see you as you truly are. I'm speaking on behalf of our church now, God. If I can put words in their mouth, we want to see you as you truly are. Not some little pocket God that we have created that is comfortable and we can control and does things our way. But God, you are wild and dangerous. You are bigger than we can imagine. And when you call us to move, we want to walk in faith and obedience. And God, we believe that we will see you move in miraculous ways if we will follow you. Give us eyes to see you. God, would you make clear this week one step that we can take? Would you show us, God, the box that we've put you in in one step that we can take? to crack the lid, to let you out. Not that you need our permission, but God, we are missing out as long as we try to pen you in. Give us one clear step that we can take in faith and obedience, allowing you to be God. And may we not miss what you do through it. Move, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.